Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, we tackle the vexed and deeply upsetting problem of child abuse. Oscar Wilde, presumably when in a more serious vein, once remarked that, and I quote, the best way to make children good is to make them happy. Childhood is, after all, our pivotal start in this world, a complicated social process that offers us the opportunities for growth and development that we so desperately need. And yet we are all painfully aware that this is not what always happens. The British psychiatrist John Bowlby said that a major function of childhood is for the child to learn basic trust. This is fundamental to the learning and establishment of attachment. Now, obviously the reach of basic trust is enormous as it affects the nature and dynamics of attachment and relationships decades later. But how can all this possibly happen when your early experiences are so distorted in a home that is potentially little more than an extended crime scene, an unsafe place with nowhere to hide? After all, childhood, as we know, is not exactly inundated with options. It is generally and commonly felt that females are more often the victim of abuse. But what about males? While all victims intensely feel the shame, could the stigma be greater for men? I ask that question. Our guest today is Dr. Guy Arcuri, who has first-hand knowledge of the subject. And one could say that he literally wrote the book. A brief bio follows. Guy Curie has a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He teaches clients to reflect on their lives in ways that promote healing and transformation. With the publication of his book, Toxic Mothers, A Son's Guide to Healing and Moving On, Finding Virtue, Reality and Love, One Rule at a Time, Guy Akuri returned to his regular teaching and coaching activities, writing, leading men's retreats, and teaching Spanish. He has managed to realize his dreams despite his pain and a tragic childhood, having suffered a verbal, emotional, and physical abuse from his mother. After getting married, it took time for him to realize that he had so internalized his childhood trauma that he was hurting the very ones he claimed to love. This initiated the tough, transformative work of therapy, learning that he could choose to be a man of virtue and integrity while loving boldly and being loved. As a self-confessed, quote-unquote, teacher of all things, he realized that many others, especially men, could benefit greatly from his story. He now enjoys a healthy family life with his wife and two children. Despite the extreme alienation and distance from his mother, as well as her unrelenting toxic behavior towards him, he agreed to be her primary caregiver during her terminal illness, 
after she was diagnosed with cancer. He spent her last six months with her, administering and testing his personal healing approach as detailed in his book, ultimately being able to secure reconciliation. Dr. Curry, welcome to Healthscape. So grateful to have you share your story with us. Thanks so much, Trevor. Thank you. You grew up in an abusive household, basically at the mercy of your mother. When did it first dawn on you that it was in no way a normal upbringing, that perhaps other families didn't at all live like this? Um, you know, I always suspected that it was different because, you know, things that come naturally, like expressing emotion, were not allowed. And it was pretty strict in our household. But when I be became a young teenager, a young adolescent, uh, I realized that my mother was projecting a, a, an image and a truth publicly that I knew not to be true at all. And I was punished severely when I challenged that publicly or privately. And I'm like, and I just couldn't understand how truth could be misconstrued that much and be the object of punishment in the end. So I thought maybe other people actually do tell the truth. And that's kind of when it started. Uh, yeah, I can imagine, you know, the uh, epiphany being that other people do tell the truth. I mean, that's that must have been shocking. Yeah, I think it comes back to trust that you were talking about in your introduction. You know, I, I couldn't trust myself and I couldn't trust my mother. You know, and, and I have to really make the disclaimer that First of all, many, many people loved her. She had many friends, and I love her too. And she loved many people uh, well. It's really half my issue that I perceive these things this way and that I internalized these things this way. But as you said also in your intro, children don't really have a choice. And so they make conclusions about their life that carry them into adulthood. And you know, that's what we have to deal with as adults. Right, no, very, very well put. So how many siblings were there? I mean, were you all treated badly or did some of them not give her as much flack perhaps as, or, or challenge as you did? Or do you feel that you were the one that was probably most targeted? Uh, no, actually my brother was the blunt end of physical abuse. Uh, and mostly because one of the rules to live by, and we can talk about what that is later, that my mother carried is that she had these children, but my brother was responsible for me, and my sister was essentially untouchable. She was the eldest, and I was the youngest. And, you know, I, I, I share a story in my book about how my I did something very inappropriate, and my mother caught us and she looked at my brother and began to beat him. And I yanked on her and said, mom or mother, excuse me, we weren't allowed to call her mother, mom, mother. It was I who did that. And she looked at me really angrily and then turned 
and continued to beat my brother because he was the one that was supposed to be watching after me not to do those things. And so, you know, and that, what does that do to your trust and your understanding of right and wrong and confession and honesty? And it's just, I, you know, for us, for my brother and myself, it was really a difficult time. So. I can, I can only imagine, um, you know, when I said medical school, it's a term that's now fallen out of favor. There was what was called a schizophrenogenic mother, meaning that the mother was, was ex- suspected of playing a big role in the development of schizophrenia. Since then, that's been dropped. Wow. Probably other research, probably also not too offensive to many people, right? Mm-hmm. And probably not inac- probably not accurate, to be quite frank. But certainly, your mother's take on life. I mean, how she straddled uh, good having good friendships. I mean, these were mm-hmm. presumably normal people that didn't even know the other side of her, and sort of like wear these multiple hats suggests mm-hmm. that you know she was it was pathogenic, you know. Um, yes, you, and. and- Truly not not in her defense, but she, her, and you can read it in my book, mm-hmm. she had a nightmare of a childhood. Okay. It was a nightmare. And she took on the role of protecting her younger siblings from the physical abuse of her father and the intense okay. neglect of her mother to, to just allow it to go on. And so, you know, she made conclusions about her life that affected her into adulthood, which then affected me, yes. Okay, now that's good that you pointed out. I'm very fair of you to do so because we do know that certainly in in, uh, in sexual abuse, which is not what we're talking about here, mm-hmm. often see victims become agents, uh, I think for want of a better term. Yes. So, um, so that's good that you pointed out. Do you feel that she had a frank, medical or psychiatric diagnosis? Uh, it's an interesting that you ask that because we became very close and reconciled very much so uh, her last six months of life. And I learned things that she would allude to sometimes, but she told me in great vulnerability in those last months And one of those is that she was diagnosed many, many times with mental illness. She, for example, her father beat her so much that she had to go to court. And when she already had had us three, she had had me by the age of 23. She had three children. And she went to court because he was continuing to do terrible things to his his own family. And the day that she testified against him, what she stopped speaking for a year. And I didn't even know that. And so my, my right. father would have to write her or he would talk to her and she would write him notes. And she was just that kind of traumatized by the whole thing. And, and, you know, she also, you know, kind of went AWOL several times. And I learned that that was all to get into some help and, get some counseling and do things like that. So, yeah, I think she did have those things, but she was not forthright in telling us what they were to address them. Okay. So one can suspect there's, you know, the PTSD, major depression and so forth, anxiety disorder. 
Um, but there was no psychosis that you know of. Like, no, no. Yeah, great. That, that's what I, 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 I meant. Oh, okay. But that's a very, very sad story. Um, I didn't realize that from um, that, you know, that there was such a horrific past uh, for her as, as, as well. Um, so the abuses that you experienced were mostly uh, psychological and, and physical, right? You well, were... I mean, they were, they were physical as well. I mean, I can give you stories um, even into my adulthood. For example, my father, um, my father was very sickly and he was having heart issues and they decided very promptly that he needed five bypasses and or actually four. And then they went in and did five and they were very adamant that he could not have anything in his mouth, not water, not ice, not, not even lip balm for his lips. And the doctor told us all that. He said, if you do that, it will really uh, put him in danger. You have to not do that. And the moment the walk doctor walked out, my mother started spoon feeding him ice. And I went to her and I said, mom, the doctor just said, no, I'm 33 years old, mind you. Mom, the doctor said not to feed him anything. Let's not do that. And she slapped me harder than I've ever been slapped in my life. And, it, you know, I didn't even see it coming. And, and, I, and I just kind of was shocked. Like, right. you know, I thought I thought I was doing my healing and that things were working, but you can't control the other person. And I, it just came at me totally in a surprise. But I was really trying to protect my father. Uh, and yes, absolutely. So so where was your father in this whole domestic mix? Uh, I mean, did he presumably knew something about the abuse, right? Or, or not? Well, n he was fairly naive. I mean, he and he uh, he worked hard. You know, they they didn't become upper middle class until right around his death, really. But he worked very, very hard. He was chronically unfaithful, which kept him at a distance. And he was very unengaged. Uh, he was great to play with sometimes when we're on vacation, things like that. But for the most part, he would watch this go on and sort of give us an, uh, a sort of look that he understood that it was crazy, but nothing it, there was no there was no rescue. Okay, so he didn't need to be. <laughs> no. And so it, it just went on, you know. Incredible. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mean it was it was almost it was almost humorous. The, the times that he did let on is when my mother would insist that he beat us. Instead, you know, she used to beat us with a hairbrush and all and switches and all of that. But she would insist that he beat us and he would take us into the room and just say, hey, I'm going to spank you a couple of times by hand just to let it happen. I don't believe in this crap. That's what he would say. And so I'm like, wow, they're, you know, now I realize parents aren't on the same page being a parent myself. <laughs> you sort of need to be on the same page. Yeah, so sure. it, it was. But that was humorous to my brother and me because we would laugh at my mother's beatings. We got them so regularly that she would get angry and then make my father do it to hurt us. And he wouldn't do it, but he would act like he did it. 
So anyway. So, uh, so your sister seems to have been spared from all of this. No, uh, 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 she, only because she was, she at an early age just went crazy. I mean, it was the mid to late sixties and early seventies. And she went off the rocker with illicit drugs and, you know, the whole culture. And it was really difficult on my parents. So you and your brother uh, um, and possibly your sister, did you seek, I mean, your father clearly knew and for whatever cluster of reasons, he was fairly passive. He understood and he was not Mm -hmm. on the same page, but he seems to have been passive. Did you seek help from any other adult, perhaps an uncle or aunt or um, older cousin or or something? I I do. I recount, you know, when I was young, the answer is essentially no, except for the fact that my sister attempted suicide twice. And on the first time, we got what's called family counseling. And in my book, I just recount how amazed I was that we could sit around and actually speak truth and no one's going to get hit. And it was, it was the most freeing thing I can remember. I was maybe 11 or 12. And so it, it, it opened up the floodgates for me and I would just, you know, vomit my, my entire life. And that happened two times. And then my mother cut it off. She couldn't handle it. She couldn't handle the fact that we were like, well, mom, this and mom, that, and she, she just couldn't handle being on the hot seat and she cut it off. And I was so sad. I remember I was so sad that here's a a moment in my life when I don't have to worry about saying the right thing or upsetting the right person or the wrong person or whatever it is. Gee, I I mean, imagine that truth without violence. Talk about uh, the truth will set you free. I mean, you don't have to worry about being. um, So so how did you uh, survive, Guy? Well, uh, I I explain it sometimes this way. My sister was very much in the drug culture and my brother was very much in the athletic culture. And by the time I got to high school, and she was very smart, my sister, I was expected to be both. And so the answer to that is, well, I'm going to be both. And so I was, I, I excelled academically and I partied hard. And, uh, but I tried to fit into everybody's world, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and craving acceptance and validation that never really came because you can't, adolescents just don't do that. Uh, and so, uh, I survived, I think by in my, what I say in my book, I created rules to live by that I thought would really bring me life. Like, well, I can just get educated and get out of this place. I'm going to have a great life. If I can find the right woman who actually doesn't mind the truth, then I'll be okay. (laughs) You know, all of these things, they're not bad in and of themselves, but Mm -hmm. as they, as I took them in with no guidance and no plan to develop my virtues, I ended up creating toxic rules to live by and, and right. insisted that my wife worship me and, ins- you know, insisted that uh, I, I went all the way to PhD and 
you know, I, I could have worked and enjoyed relationships and colleagues, but I, I just worked intensely in the academic field. Uh, and so, you know, that said, I thought those things would get me out. And sometimes they do for people. But for me, it, it created more isolation and more insulation and more uh, dysfunction, really, that I needed to deal with. Well, I guess when, when, you know, when you being punished for telling the truth and for being who you believe you are, uh, the take-home message is pretty loud and clear that you're not good enough, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so be someone else. Come up with something. Come up with stuff. Right. And this is where it gets perpetuated across families, which clearly, uh, I mean, I had no idea your mother's childhood was, it sounds horrific. I mean, not talking for a year mm -hmm. suggests to me psychological injury that's, I, I don't know how much more extreme it can get. Well, it can get more extreme, as we know, yeah. but, but yes. it's pretty much up there, right? Mm -hmm. So... Were there any other, I mean, apart from like uh, working, you know, literally one's butt off and academically and at sports and that to get acceptance and position, uh, social standing or whatever we want to call it, uh, were there any sort of immediate st strategies? We now live in a world of hacks, strategies or sort of instant hacks where you could, as you got older, contain mom more easily when she was having a really bad <laughs> run or something. To, to contain mom. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I have this concept that we, we escape our conscience or we escape our life. And without a plan, we'll end up toxic for sure. Uh, for me, I thought moving out and moving away and staying away was the way to go. And I think, you know, it was very, uh, it was hurtful to my family that I left, but I didn't, I didn't like what I became when I went home I, uh, to my hometown. So I stayed away and, uh, you know, I married when I was 20 years old. I've, I've been married for 39 years now. So I, I just did everything I could to distance myself from them and I don't, I don't recommend it per se, unless there's danger. I do recommend working on yourself and your own boundaries and your own strategies to become a better person. For me, the aha moment was when I, I as you said in your introduction, I, I, I was very mean to my wife and I was really resentful of authority and I was very resentful of my colleagues who sort of had free lives and lived freely without constraint. Uh, and, you know, I was living this misery of trying to gain acceptance and validity and, and climb up that academic ladder, you know, when that's not going to bring me life, ultimately. And right. so for me, I, I, it was a aha moment and a come to Jesus moment, literally and figuratively, where I just had to say, I have to do something different uh, mm. and get, get over this because I really do want to love my wife. I really do want to express myself freely, but also love others boldly and 
help them become free. And so that sort of thing launched me into counseling and things like that. Right. So you, you, from the age of about 20, you didn't see much of any of your family or just your parents? For a very long time. Now, mind you, they were consumed with my sister who, who was still recovering from brain damage and who was living on Section 8 housing. Uh, she was on welfare. She, she needed a lot of attention and they poured their whole lives into her and her children. She had two children very quickly uh, by a really scary man. And uh, ultimately my parents raised her children with her, but they were consumed with her and really they wouldn't come to me and I was not going to them. And so, uh, you know, although I was financially able to help them get here whenever they wanted, they've chose not to come here but I didn't want to go there. I, it was too okay. painful. It was too painful, too scary. And you kept contact with your brother? Um, yeah, I did. But you know, in my book, I, I I talk about there's a there's the drunk brother and the sober brother. And as time went on, it was less of the sober brother and more of the drunk brother. Okay. And that was a really hard thing because when he was drunk, he was angry, and he mistreated me. Uh, the same thing was happening to him that he just had this rage that he couldn't control, but, you know, he would direct it at my mother, of course, but he would also, uh, in very much hurt me because of my own financial situation and my own, you know, he, he realized I got out. I just got out of that situation and I didn't want to come back in. Uh, but as I healed, like you said, I realized I can help my mother uh, during her hospice years, her hospice months, and and help her. So, right. Uh, just a time for a brief commercial break. Uh, you're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, speaking with Dr. Guy R. Curie about childhood uh, abuse issues. We'll be right back. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also The Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. Are you looking for a path to better health rather than just avoiding disease? A good deal depends on your environment and overall behaviors. 
On Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell, we focus on the daily techniques that can help with chronic pain, addiction, trauma, and disease. You can take a more active approach to taking control of your health and your life. Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell can be heard every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at TrevorCampbellMD.com. Now back to the show. Hello. You're... You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, speaking with Dr. Guy Arcuri about childhood abuse. So, Guy, you took it upon yourself to nurse your mother in her last days when she was battling cancer, which is astonishing and and commendable, I might add, um, given the amount of resentment that must have been and was generated over the years. What what prompted you to do that? Was there no one else qualified uh, to help her, or available, or or wanting to help her? Trevor, you're amazingly insightful. Just <laughs> I, I just commend you. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, my my father, my sister died. Uh, now it's eight years ago, and. Then I had a heart attack. And then right after that, my sister died. I'm sorry, my father died. And then my mother got sick. And then, uh, but she was very, very afraid of my brother. Uh, She had hurt him, uh, you know, physically. And as an adult, he had hit one of his sons died. And my, my mother just refused to go to the funeral. And when I was going to fly her and her newly found fiance, and it was not a good interaction. And so my brother began to really rage at her and Mm. she was afraid of him. And so she came to me and said, no one's going to be there. But she also added, and I don't want anyone to know that I'm dying. And the worst part for me was trying to keep the secret that she wasn't dying, frankly, Mm -hmm. but to answer your question, I really believed by that time that I had learned the art of boundaries. I have learned, I had healed enough to know that she can't hurt me in a permanent way anymore. And so uh, I, I very, very quickly had to talk to my wife because it meant me going to Arizona every other week until she was bedridden. Uh, but I said, yes, I said, sure, I'll do that. And, you know, it was, it was the beginning of a really good time for me to be honest, because as she weakened her sort of enforcement of her silly rules and untruths became less relevant to her. And it was a little bit more, it was a little bit easier to reconcile and have a converse, a conversation instead of her manipulating the discussion, you know, that she led. 
Uh, so, yeah. Can you speak a bit about the transition? I mean, you probably went as a dutiful son, uh, despite the past, and um, basically because you felt it was the right thing to do, I'm, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. So can you trace how this morphed? Because by the end of this six-month period, you feel you secured reconciliation. Uh, that's a really great question, too. So I, I think for me, it was first perfunctory. Yes, I can do that out of obligation. Yes. Uh, and I really did protect myself. And what I realized is that I really had not healed enough because she would bring up things that absolutely triggered me. And, okay. you know, there were a few inappropriate times when I raged at her and I needed to ask for forgiveness. Um, you know, you can, you can read the story. There are several in the book about forgiveness and apologies. And my mother, if you apologize to my mother, it was a reopening uh, opportunity for her to just dig a little more. And it was really intense. And so for me to hurt her, you know, just, I just really just yelled at her for things that blew my mind that she was telling me. And she was telling me in the context of the question, guy, I was a good mother, wasn't I? And then she would proceed to tell me things uh, that were very traumatic. One, I, I, is, is a really good example. I have a very dear friend. Uh, he, he and his entire family were amazingly generous to me in terms of their affection and their attention during all of those formative years. And I, I tried to be with him and I, try, and I actually liked his sister uh, and tried to date her. But my mother made it very, very, very difficult And it never occurred to me until three months before she died, she told me, you didn't need him. His name is Barry. His family is rich and you don't need to be with rich people. So she confessed to me then that she had manipulated my entire childhood to limit my time with Mm -hmm. Barry's family. And and I'm like blown away by that because he yeah. really is a kind, amazing guy. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, we would be amazing friends now, but she wouldn't really allow that friendship to even, you know, yeah. mature. And yeah. because she didn't like rich people. So, and, and you know, I, I yelled at her and I said, do you realize his family was the only reason that I finished college? Because they, his father gave me money. And his father said, you, you may not get out of college. You have to continue and finish. You have to. And I'm like, okay, I will. You know, I wanted to quit and work and, you know, make money for my wife and all of these things. He said, finish college. You got to finish. You got to finish. So I did. And, you know, those are kind things that good people do to encourage others. And I, I missed out. I missed out on more of that because my mother didn't like rich people. So, go figure. Yeah, no, so she blew that one out of the water for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the control is, is is astonishing. But again, in yeah. the context of what you know, this is where 
if there aren't interventions early on, it, it carries on and on and perpetuates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, based on what you have learned, do you feel that it's somehow different having been abused as a male or that the experience, say, from a societal perspective is perhaps different? And the reason I ask this, because a lot of people may take issue or, or some may take issue yes. with this, um, Obviously, abuse is abuse. I mean, we don't need to, mm. to um, you know, it's sort of like try and we, the, the problem is abuse. But I have had male patients who for the longest time, you know, it's, uh, a few of them just kept quiet because they had a persona that was can do and they couldn't even talk. Well, the minute they started talk about, they would cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I'm I'm thinking uh, you know is, is there's a cultural thing that you know when you playing sports and stuff and you're ten years old or eight years old you don't cry if you get hurt mm-hmm. you know do right. you feel that there's more stigma or not um, I think there's I, I think there's a lot of things there's a lot of sources. Uh, that make it difficult, op- obstacles or stigma, whatever you want to call it, uh, for yeah, men. Barriers, uh, maybe barriers yes. is a better word because yes. there's stigma everywhere, right? In yes. any kind of mental condition, and even disease condition, but, unfortunately, but to, right? To find help and to go get it and to do it right requires a great deal of vulnerability and reflection that we're not taught as men. We're not taught to be vulnerable. We're not taught to reflect on ourselves. And so that's one sort of barrier. There's another barrier, I think, culturally, that there's a culture, as you said, not to cry. There's a culture that said, get over it. I think I told you the story of uh, my very first negative comment from my book uh, was a, a man who said his, he, the book hadn't even come out yet. And he said, Cry baby, just by reading the title. And he hadn't even read the book. And I thought, you know, if this man was in pain and he said, cry baby, that's sad. But if he's not in pain and had a decent childhood and he said that, he's also in a sad situation of being completely unempathetic. He mm-hmm. has no idea what empathy is. And we're not taught that as men. We're just not taught to be empathetic. Some people are naturally, my son is very naturally empathetic, but we're not taught that. And so it's, it's difficult. And I think the other two is that we are more extreme men in two behaviors that we all, you know, exhibit behaviors that lead us to becoming toxic and to healing. Mm -hmm. But we, I think are much more extreme about our impulsivity. Uh, We just escape impulsively. And both my brother and myself, we escaped impulsively. We didn't think it through. It's just, I got to get out of here. I have to get out of here. Whether it's alcohol or work hard or move away, I just got to get out of here and and not think through that. The other two I I have labeled isolation and insulation. And we isolate ourselves and we're supposed to. You know, it's all up to us. It's either all up to us or we're our situation is so different. No one's going to understand. And neither of those forms of isolation uh, are healthy to heal. 
uh, and then the other is insulation. I'm sorry? They preclude recovery, really. Correct. They preclude. Uh, And insulation is just as bad where we just surround ourselves with people who don't challenge us or don't question us. You know, I had very dear friends who said, Guy, you are really mean to your wife. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. And then I asked my wife and she said, you are. You're mean. In public, you think you're being funny, but you're just cutting me down. And she was right. And so uh, I had, but I had not insulated myself uh, to everybody just, you know, encouraging my machismo and not dealing with the fact that I'm not loving my wife. And so those sorts of things are, uh, I can give you a really good example of the insulation. Uh, It, I have a friend and he was part of an eight pack and, and this group of four couples did everything together. They raised their children together. They vacationed together. They did everything together. They insulated themselves and they, their entire purpose for being together was to party and to get as drunk and as, you know, whatever free as they could to the point where they encouraged their children young to smoke cigarettes and to drink alcohol And it was a really great time until one of the men decided that he had a drinking problem and he went to AA and then he came to them and said, guess what? I just want y'all to know that I'm not going to drink anymore. And the six of them decided they felt uncomfortable and judged by that. And so they kicked out that guy and his wife and became a six pack with, without a question. Mm-hmm. A friendship without a question. So, you know, if you're going to make me feel uncomfortable about the way I'm friends and the way I live my life, and you're going to make me feel judged, then I'm not going to be your friend because that's not what I, you know, and so they insulated themselves even more. And I'm, and, you know, for me, I like, dude, y- you need to reexamine the way you, you are friends yes. with people. Yes. So. At least they he exposed the focus, which was on, on alcohol rather than communality. Correct. So the cat was out the bag. Uh, this insulation thing, you know, no man is an island. Uh, some yes. uh, guy said that uh, many years ago. And, of course, it may seem like containment is out of control. Nobody knows. I mean, it's I've got it under control. Nobody knows. Nobody suspects. But why would you... Add a literal prison sentence onto your life after right. all these past hor- horrors, you know. And as for the guy who said, you know, cry baby, I mean, I'm clearly not the most astute, but it, to what is the alternative? Someone's had a bad childhood and now you've got to just be unhappy because we don't want to hear a complaint. Right. Right. You know, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can laugh at it now, but you know, no, no, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, um, it's, it's. So you feel that there are more barriers uh, um, because of that, and I'm talking now. Look, it's not every culture in the world. I know there are sort of Latin cultures that are said to be more uh, emotional or demonstrative about their mm-hmm. their emotions. Um, I'm talking, I've worked mainly speaking English with uh, Anglo uh, type types, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
for want of a better descriptor. Um, so basically, um, that is a big barrier. I think this is a very vivid illustration in two words. You've one has summarized or you've been able to, you know, in effect, summarize the added hurdle, I think. Now, there may be others we're not giving due treatment, but... I also think there's another barrier, and, you know, I haven't researched it as much as the other ones in my book, but I really believe that even the solutions to healing in in the psychology clinical psychology field are female oriented you know group therapy uh you know and yes i think there's a real what's the word i think there's a a a, a an argument for same sex therapy groups and i know they exist but you, it's very difficult for men to share because, but women are, are, are raised to have groups of people with whom they are vulnerable, with whom they share, uh, mm-hmm. you know, intimate things and men aren't, they're just not, they're like, let's go bowling or let, you know, it, it, it's different. And yeah. so when you try to treat the problem, sometimes there's, an added component of teaching men mm-hmm. how to be in a group and how to be vulnerable, which I think takes more time. So it's another barrier of healing that women don't have. They're like, oh, okay, I can share and be safe and I can heal and I can change my behavior. You know, but men are like, well, you mean I'm I have to ask people for forgiveness? That's making me vulnerable. No one's ever taught me how to do that. And so you yeah. have to teach people that and it's it's difficult thing. Reassure them a lot, I would say. Yeah, for yes. sure. Um, you talk a lot about moving on. What is what do you mean? I mean, we all use the expression "time to move on," and you mm-hmm. know, uh, it's done kind of thing. But when do you know you've truly moved on? When it's less of a problem, obviously, would be I would suspect would be one metric. Uh, but but I get a feel that you mean something more, perhaps. Yes. This context. I'm, I, I think you've already begun to allude to it. You know, uh, I have this concept of what it means to be toxic. And it is really toxicity is one person placing demands, what I call rules to live by, personal yes. set of rules to live by. And placing those demands on others and then insisting in destructive ways that those demands be met. And that's being toxic. And these rules to live by are just things that we use to live. Like if I get that promotion, my life's going to be better. If, Mm -hmm. if that, if I can just convince that girl to like me, then my life is going to be better. Mm -hmm. You know, those are fine until we begin to impose those rules inappropriately onto other people. Yes. And so the first step of, of moving on is to own your own toxicity uh, and, and identify it. And I use a simple uh, sort of illustration uh, sort of chart in, in the book, just to make it simple for, for men to follow. Uh, but then you got to learn how to generate, 
new rules to live by that are attached to virtues and character that you want to develop in yourself. And then with these new rules, what you said is you were talking about imprisonment. You have to walk into your life with freedom now, with freedom Mm -hmm. from all of that imprisonment and start living your life. That's number one. Number two, to move on, you, you have to have a life style where you welcome healthy input, not the input of, wow, are you going to make sure you have all the beer for the party? That's not welcoming healthy input. Well, welcoming healthy input is someone saying, guy, you're not loving your wife. Well, you make fun of her in public and you saying, oh, okay, maybe I need to do something about that. Uh, and so welcoming, and then that can be in the form of reading or therapy, or in my case, another form was getting a mentor but welcome healthy input into your life. And then finally, I have this concept called loving boldly. And as you practice these virtues over time, you have integrity in doing it and you love boldly and loving boldly in my definition is a measure of whether we're moving on. Mm -hmm. And my definition is to love boldly, you intentionally restore the other person to a better relationship with himself or with you or with others or with his or her God, uh, whatever that is. And so you get to know the person enough to where this person needs restored to himself. And and that's really what I did with my mother is I just loved her in that way. And I helped her to say goodbye to her friends. So I helped her develop better relation or, or, I guess, say goodbye and, and revisit those relationships while she was dying. And I took her to places and people to see, uh, but ultimately I was, you know, I helped her to really, uh, like the last four weeks of her life, we had this Christian radio station on and it played music on TV, like karaoke. And we just sang together. So I was helping her to really connect with her God and just mm. move on. And so if, if you're loving well, you're leaving behind res- restoration, restored relationships. And this comes from a, a psych- psychologist named Dan Allender, who allowed me to use the concept in my book. Uh, and he is just an amazing guy. Uh, anything he writes is really awesome. But mm-hmm. uh, he, he, I asked him, I said, this to me is like the measure that we're moving on. Can I use it in my book? And he said, sure, go. So I did. It's great. Yeah. No, I, you know, I've just, I, I just thought of something, you know, this insularity and, and how dangerous it is. When I was in high school, we had the um, Lord of the Flies by William Golding, where these oh, yes. kids get marooned and it ends Love badly. That. And then there's another book spoke to mine, uh, Paul Theroux's Mosquito Coast. I remember, you know, where he went to Honduras or something to protect uh-huh. his family from the coming evils. And I don't know that one. I'll have to go that, yeah, there was a movie, I think, with, <laughs> uh, with uh, Helen Mirren and Harris. Yeah, Helen Mirren and someone. Harrison, maybe Ford. I don't know. But um, excellent. Uh, quickly, please, uh, but we've, <laughs> we're running out of time, Guy. I'm sorry. Just uh, tell us more about where we can access your book and whatever you want to tell us about, please. So there's a, there's a Kindle version and a paperback version on Amazon 
right now. You can search my last name, Arcuri, A-R-C-U-R-I, or Toxic Mothers or something like that, and uh, it's there. I also have a website that promotes men's retreats and a blog that uh, expands on the ideas in my book and things like that. What and it's just my website? my website is just my name.com, Guy, G-U-Y, Arcuri, A-R-C-U-R-I, at, uh, dot com, sorry. GuyRCurie.com. Okay. Okay. Great. And um, yeah, uh, it's it's been it's been great. This is actually part, I think, of a longer conversation. It's about healthy relationships and so forth. Um, uh, obviously, if your mother had, well, we we can't really compare the two case the as case histories. I've learned not to do that, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, there is the important take home for me is when there's a problem, and, and we know this already, don't insulate, see someone professionally. And it's also a good idea, unless you're advised professionally, to share it with one or two trusted family members or friends so that they can understand where you're at and why you might be guarded, hypervigilant, and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's, it's very cathartic, often, well, mostly. And um, it it does buy oneself some, uh, you know, a, a place where one can be freer to talk to someone who kind of knows your backstory. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you agreeing to come. Um, it's it's been it's been very insightful, heartfelt, and moving that somebody could overcome these obstacles, and um, and do. I think at the end of the day. I don't want to sermonize, but how we treat other people is probably the biggest judge of what our life's about under all circumstances. Absolutely. I'm going to steal that. That's a really good line. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's yours. I I don't even know if it's mine. You know, Uh, one reads and one one misremembers as well as remembers. Um, Anyway, Dr. Guy Okuri, wonderful. Carry on the excellent work you do. And we'd love to have you again. I, I would appreciate it. And thank you so much, Trevor. Your, 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 your podcast is amazing. It's just like so far reaching and broad and, but really, really nails things for people. Well, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate it. Um, you're listening to Healthscape with Dr. Guy Okuri. We've spoken about childhood abuse. Um, tune in next week. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.